This morning, we come to one of the most shocking confrontations in the Bible. A confrontation that took place after the Apostle Peter offered to the Apostle Paul the right hand of fellowship. We pick up the account in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Shocking. Cephas. He's more readily known to us as Peter. It's the Aramaic nickname that Jesus gave to Simon and means stone or rock. In the Greek, it's Petros, from which we get Peter. The one opposing Peter is none other than the Apostle Paul. The one to whom Peter extended the right hand of fellowship just a few years earlier in Jerusalem. As we noted last week, there are risks in fellowship and in acknowledging and embracing family relationships. You know, you'll never have a conflict with someone you never get to know. And that's why some avoid personal relationships, even in the church. And Peter may have regretted befriending Paul when they met again in Antioch, because it was there that Paul confronted Peter and opposed him to his face, confronted him publicly. Now that in itself is shocking, a public confrontation between two apostles, But then Paul says something that's even more shocking. He says he confronted Peter because he stood condemned. An apostle, condemned. Now, is Paul suggesting that Peter was on his way to hell? And that's why he confronted him? Well, not necessarily. The word he used here is not the same word he used when he declared that anyone who would alter the gospel message is accursed, anathema marked out for destruction. But it's still a strong word. It means that something is wrong and is known to be wrong and that it stands condemned by God. Paul is at the very least saying that he confronted Peter because he was doing something that was very wrong, something that was in fact sinful, that he saw something in Peter's life that needed to be confronted And while the nature of that public confrontation may have made both men uncomfortable, it is to Paul's credit that he confronted Peter to his face. He didn't gossip behind his back. He didn't express shock in hushed tones that everyone would eventually hear. He confronted Peter openly and publicly. He did so because Peter's sin had been committed publicly. So what was it? that Peter had done. What did he do that was so terrible that it brought two apostles into a face-to-face confrontation? What horrible sin had he committed? Surprisingly, he did something that most of us wouldn't even consider sinful. He fell victim to peer pressure. Yes, Peter petered out, 
under peer pressure. And while we might think that's no big deal, Paul did. So we better take a closer look at what happened and rethink the danger and the power of peer pressure. Verse 12. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof fearing the party of the circumcision. Again, this sounds like no big deal to us, but it is. To understand it, we need to set the scene a bit. Apparently, at some point, the apostle Peter decided to visit the church in Antioch. His visit isn't mentioned in the book of Acts, so we can't be certain when it took place, but it appears to have taken place while Paul was on furlough in Antioch, after his first missionary journey, or just shortly before his return to Antioch. By that time, the church in Antioch was rivaling the Jerusalem church in importance. It was there the disciples were first called Christians, and it was the church that had sent out Paul and Barnabas on their journey to evangelize in Asia Minor, which is today the country of Turkey. It was also a church that differed considerably from the mother church in Jerusalem. Almost all the believers in Jerusalem were of Jewish heritage. The church in Antioch had a mixed population of both Jewish and Gentile Christians. When Peter came for a visit, he knew that Jews and Gentiles were worshiping and fellowshipping together. He knew that long-standing ethnic and religious walls had been broken down. Is also well aware of the fact that most Jews would never socialize with Gentiles. To do so would make them ceremonially unclean, and they certainly would not eat together. But he also knew that everyone was to be welcomed in the household of faith. Jesus had made it clear that the gospel was to be proclaimed in Jerusalem and Judea, where the population was primarily Jewish, in Samaria, where the blended population of intermarried Jews and Gentiles lived, and throughout the rest of the world, which was for the most part Gentile. Peter knew that Christ had died for all mankind and had no doubt taught as much in Jerusalem. But in Jerusalem, his theology in this regard was seldom put to the test. Things changed when he got to Antioch. Jews and Gentiles were in the same church, and they were actually eating together. Now, Peter apparently liked the unity he found there and quickly joined in the fellowship. He openly ate with his Gentile brothers and sisters. No doubt he shared the Lord's table with Jewish and Gentile brethren alike. He may have even gone into Gentile homes for meals. He did so until certain men from James came to town. Now, who they were, we're not told. And it's doubtful that they were actually official representatives sent by James, the brother of Jesus, and the leading elder in the Jerusalem church. 
James did, however, have a reputation for being faithful to the Jewish heritage, and the Judaizers, those who insisted that Gentiles had to become Jews before they could become Christians, no doubt sought to give authority to their views by using the name of James. Whatever the actual case might have been when those men came to town, Peter withdrew from his Gentile brethren. He backed off from fellowship with the Gentiles in the church, and he stopped eating with them. Why? Because he was afraid. He was afraid he might be seen eating with Gentiles. But why should the apostle Peter be afraid of the party of the circumcision? What danger was he in if they saw him eating with Gentiles? None whatsoever. His life wasn't in danger. They could not demote him from his apostleship. They couldn't kick him out of the church. All they could do was disapprove. And Peter was afraid of what his Jewish brethren might think. These were his friends from back home, the guys he liked and worked with in Jerusalem. And he knew they would not approve of what he was doing. So he backed off. He fell victim to peer pressure. Apparently, peer pressure is more powerful than we think. We generally think of peer pressure as something that only affects teens. But adults, even apostles, can come under its sway. And so can churches. In order to find acceptability in society, church leaders, congregations, and even ecclesiastical bodies can buy into secular thinking and start using redefined words that make them appear to be culturally woke. Now, the foundation of biblical justice is righteousness, treating each other as God has ordained not some cultural vision of equity. Sexual differences and acceptable behavior were established by God and are not open to personal desires and preferences. And even though we are all now one in Christ Jesus, mankind was divided by God at Babel. So acknowledging racial distinctions is not evil. Temptation to buy into the world's thinking and to be conformed by the world is pervasive. And the pressure to be accepted is powerful. Powerful enough to make the Apostle Peter stand aloof from his brothers in Christ. Again, this was Peter, the rock. But he crumbled. He petered out. Peer pressure can pull anyone down. Whether we want to admit it or not, it's a very powerful force in everyone's life. We all do care what others think of us. In spite of what we might say, it does matter what our friends and neighbors and co-workers think of us. I think honest answers to the following questions will bear this out. Have you ever done anything you really didn't want to do? 
perhaps even knew you should not do just because someone else thought you should? Have you ever avoided someone for fear of what others might think? Have you ever done less than you could have because it might upset your coworkers? Have you ever bought something you didn't need or couldn't afford just because everyone else had one? Peer pressure is more powerful than we think. And negative peer pressure can not only pull us down, it can draw others into our charade into our hypocrisy. And yes, yielding to peer pressure almost always degenerates into hypocrisy. Let's read on. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. When Peter backed off, the rest of the Jewish Christians in Antioch took the cue from him and backed off too. They were family. They were friends. But if Peter thought it was wrong to eat with Gentiles, they would stop doing so too. His action effectively led to a division in the Antioch church. They were no longer one in Christ. They were two churches meeting in the same location. Things got so bad that even Barnabas withdrew from fellowship with the Gentile Christians. He was the son of encouragement, the one who had accepted Paul when no one else would. He was Paul's co-worker, and it helped lead Gentiles to Christ throughout Asia Minor. How had he been sucked in? Better yet, why had anyone stopped fellowshipping with their Gentile brothers and sisters? Was it because they had come to the conviction that it was wrong? Had they received a new revelation from God? No! They hadn't become convinced it was wrong to fellowship with Gentiles. They were just afraid that others might think so, and they wouldn't approve. Apparently, however, they tried to make it look as if they were doing so on the basis of convictions. And that's why Paul accused them of hypocrisy. They wanted to give the appearance of doing something for the right reason, even though they knew they weren't. And Peter did know better. In fact, he actually had been given a revelation to that effect. Before God sent him to Cornelius, he revealed to Peter in a vision that there was to no longer be a distinction made between clean and unclean and that what God had cleansed, no one should consider unholy. He then went to a Gentile's home. He witnessed a second outpouring of the Holy Spirit and baptized Cornelius into Christ. He even defended his doing so to the brethren back in Jerusalem, so he knew better than to withdraw fellowship from the Gentiles in Antioch. But he did so. And he apparently tried to justify his action, thus the charge of hypocrisy. And if we're honest about it, there's almost always an element of hypocrisy in yielding to peer pressure. We try to justify what we're doing. We make excuses for our behavior. We put a positive spin on it. We say we're yielding so we won't offend anyone, so it won't hurt anyone. In reality, we're doing so because we don't want to be hurt. 
and would rather do something we know to be wrong than to risk being criticized by someone whose opinion we value apparently even more than the Lord's. And that's what Paul was doing. Oh, that's what Peter was doing. And that's why Paul opposed him to his face. And let it be known that his actions stood condemned. Negative peer pressure is indeed a force to be reckoned with. And if it could bring down the apostle Peter and Paul's co-worker Barnabas, it can bring us down as well. So what stopped it in Antioch? What is the antidote to peer pressure? I think we'll find out. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, whether Paul was there when Peter withdrew or arrived shortly thereafter, we don't know. But either way, as soon as he discovered what was going on, he knew he had to do something. But how did he know he had to do something? This was Peter. And even though Paul insisted that his apostleship was as valid as Peter's, publicly exposing another apostle was not something to be taken lightly. Maybe this was just a difference of opinion. It should be left in the realm of liberty. After all, there is much room for liberty and differences of opinion in the church. And we shouldn't oppose a brother who simply differs with us on such matters. So should they have simply agreed to disagree on this matter? Absolutely not. Paul discerned that Peter and those who were following his lead were not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel. That what they were doing was in direct violation of God's revealed will for his church. And when it becomes clear that someone is doing things that stand condemned before God, we must act. Now we have to be careful. We must not put words into God's mouth, if he hasn't said it, we must not insist that something stands condemned in his sight. What someone is doing may not be wise, and sharing our opinion or offering a suggestion might be the loving thing to do, but we must not declare something to be condemned if God hasn't condemned it, nor oppose a brother simply because we disagree with him. This is a real challenge for all of us because our opinions are huge. There are things I find very unwise for Christians to do, and you know what some of them are. I've not been shy about sharing it. But I can't say you stand condemned if you disagree with me on them if God hasn't said that behavior is condemned. There are times when we must express liberty to our brothers and sisters in Christ. But there are times when we need to do something. When something is clearly in violation of what God has said, something is inconsistent with the revealed word of God, 
love demands that we confront and that we do so quickly, especially if others are following them in their sinful behavior. You know, it's so easy to get caught up in something. Maybe it's something you always wanted to do, and now you found a brother or sister who's doing it, and you say, wow, we can do it too. Before long, it infects the whole body. Some of those things are okay. Some of them are not. And if God has condemned a behavior, we must confront. We must confront. And when Paul discerned this to be the case, he confronted Peter. And he did so to his face. Doing so was not only appropriate because Peter's sin had been publicly committed and therefore needed to be publicly exposed as sin, but in doing so publicly, Paul created an environment where others would be encouraged to join him in opposing Peter's actions. In other words, he sought to use peer pressure to bring Peter to repentance. So yes, peer pressure can be a good thing. In fact, positive peer pressure can be a most effective antidote to negative peer pressure. When it becomes obvious that something we've done to gain the favor of some has brought us the disfavor of others, we might find ourselves rethinking what we've done, especially if what we've done has been publicly exposed as being sinful. Now, again, unless the sin is public in nature and therefore demands a public corrective, going public is not to be the first response. Jesus taught us to go first to a sinning brother privately. If that doesn't bring him to repentance, we are to then take one or two others with us to confront him. If that doesn't work, we are to expose his sin publicly before the entire church. And we do so not to bring him to condemnation, but to repentance. We create an environment in the church where peer pressure is brought to bear that will hopefully lead to a positive change. And that is what Paul is doing in Antioch. And that is what we may be called upon to do within our immediate or even extended church family. If a situation arises that calls upon us to oppose a brother to his face, I pray we'll have the courage to do so. That we'll have the courage to lovingly confront a brother whose words or actions stand condemned before God. And that we'll do so before he himself has to stand condemned before God. Now, there's no indication that this confrontation created a rift between Peter and Paul. In spite of their human weaknesses, they were both committed to the lordship of Christ. And they were both willing to surrender to his will when it was brought to their attention by brothers and sisters who cared enough to confront them. May we likewise surrender our will to his.
May we have brothers and sisters who care enough to confront us when it's needed. Let's pray. Father, life in the family is sometimes hard. Sibling rivalry exists even in the household of faith. We have to be patient, we have to be loving, we have to be forgiving. We must not make a mountain out of a molehill. But if we discern a brother or sister has slipped into behavior that is in direct opposition to your will, your revealed will, give us the courage to love them enough to confront. Help us realize the, the power of the world to, to change our thinking, to change our behavior. Help us to, to stand firm, not only as individuals, but as a church, when the culture around us is telling us things we know aren't true. It's so easy, so easy to yield. Help us to strengthen each other. Help us to be brave. Help us to be courageous. Help us to be loving. Help us to be honest. Help us to be centered in your word and stand firm on the truth, whatever it is. We surrender to your lordship individually, and we surrender to your lordship as a church body. Help us to live lives that honor you. That's my prayer in Jesus' name.